If you'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. You know, we begin by reading, um, I, I hope that you'll see the, the stark and pronounced connection to really the whole of today's lesson, that when we read Scripture, it's not a mechanical, robotic, uh, just a matter-of-fact thing that we ought to do as God's people. Let's open by reading God's Word. There's a, there's a certain commitment and, and principle in play that, as we've discussed with the origin and nature of the Bible, God's authority rests in this book, and so he uses it in profound ways to direct our hearts and minds uh, towards himself, right? So uh, we want to exemplify that. We want to live that out by truly giving reverence to his word. So we'll talk about in just a moment what we're going to unpack. We have some serious ground to cover this evening, serious ground. Uh, Not evening, morning. It already feels like evening. It may be evening when we get done. So... (laughs) Um, serious ground. So buckle up, stretch your spiritual legs, and uh, let's dive in. If you could stand to your feet, let's read out of reverence to God's Word. Randy, everything sounding okay? Okay, looking fantastic this morning. Speaking of fantastic, let's turn to this book, Psalm 1, and then we'll pray. reads, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray this morning. Father, as we stand on our feet, we pray that it's a, a physical representation of our disposition before you, that we are ready and we are attentive to be molded and changed under the authority and wielding of your word. Lord, whatever discipline needs to be corrected, whatever ways in which you need to motivate us and stir us and challenge us, we are imperfect creatures. We are overwhelmed by your grace towards us as sinners, not only in saving us, us, but growing us in the likeness of your Son, that you would take such vested interest through the ministry of your Spirit and through the ministry of your Word to bring about your glory in our lives. Lord, we, we are grateful. We thank you, thankful that you make us your own, and we thank you that you conform us to yourself. This morning, as we unpack what it is to study your word, our Bibles, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us in that which we already know, perhaps. Lord, challenge us in things of which we do not consistently practice. Lord, and we pray all of this as always, for your glory and in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. All right, you can take your seats. Welcome to Equip Ministry. We have 
I think anywhere around 18 people in membership class this Sunday, so we've got a few open seats, which is fantastic. Uh, Those membership classes, the Lord is building His church and bringing people to North Lake, of which we're thankful. We want to be faithful. And in the spirit of being faithful, this is Equip Hour, all right? The whole notion of adult ministry this hour leading up to the second hour is that we would be equipped to be, in fact, better worshipers. We would be more faithful, fruitful stewards of the gospel. We would be propped up to contend earnestly for the faith, right, as Jude 3 tells us to. And we know if that faithfulness and if that fruitfulness is to take place in our lives, it is imperative that we have a systematic, thorough, regular study of the doctrines found in God's Word. So if you're visiting or have been in and out, that's exactly what we're doing. Over the span of 25 weeks, yes, that's half a year, we are going to be looking at those doctrines, spending our time, parking the car in various parking spots along the way. We've been resting in the area of bibliology, the nature and origin of the Bible, how it came to us. Next Sunday, we're going to transition from bibliology And we're going to look at he who is the subject, the main character of the Bible itself. That is God. It is not us, as we've talked about, which is so, um, which is a pernicious sort of uh, errant view of God's word, even in the church today, is that this is all about us. This is all about God and his glory, right? This is theocentric. His exaltation is on display in every page. And then we'll traverse to yet more even rich equally rich doctrines in the weeks thereafter. By way of reminder, what we've done over the last, I guess, four weeks is unpack and unpack, but never, really never exhaust. We can't, we don't have enough time to unpack the nature and area of bibliology, as well as all of the rich doctrines that are attached therein brings us to the natural question. As we've looked at the creation and its composition as well as its credibility. Last Sunday was rich to look at the characteristics of the Bible, its authority and clarity and necessity and sufficiency of Scripture itself. It brings us to the natural question of, now what? What do we do with this? And so we traverse to how do we know our Bibles? How do we know our Bibles? How do we study it? Handle it? Consume it? All to the end that we would live by it. That is the question at hand. Our memory verse over this particular week is 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling or dividing the word of truth. Be diligent. To give you a sense of where we'll be going, we're going to cover over the next few minutes not only our the motivation of studying the Bible, but also as well as the methods that we use for studying the Bible as well. Let's spend a moment at looking at the motivations. And I've mentioned we're going to make some ground, so keep up. We'll just keep making progress down the road. First is, uh, why do we study the Bible? Why are we compelled to do this? Is because it's God's will, right? Plain and simple, that should end the discussion. God has commanded us to do this. Deuteronomy 6.6. The Lord tells his people these words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Implication, inference we take from there, do it at all times. Let it be on your hearts. Joshua 1, 8, right? These words, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that, and here's Psalm 1 again, that you may be careful to do according to all the it is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, resonating with Psalm 1, and then you will have success. Even later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, why do we mention 1 Thessalonians 4 too? Is because that quickly leads us to the next motivation for why we study the Bible. And that is the, the way in which the Holy Spirit uses God's Word as a tool in our sanctification. If God's will for us is it, that we would be conformed into the image of Christ, we have to acknowledge the role that God's Word plays in using His his instruction to us to make us more like himself. We have John 17, 17, right? The Lord, Olivet Discourse here, sanctify them in the truth, praying to the Father, your word is truth. First Peter 2, 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, important phrase, so that by it, you may what, church? Grow up. You may be sanctified. Grow up in respect to salvation. Even our memory verse thus far, which hopefully is plugged away in your hearts, in your minds, 2 Timothy 3.16. Can anyone tell us that verse? 2 Timothy 3.16. Pop quiz. Owen. Excellent, excellent. We give him an internal silent applause. Thank you for that, Owen, stepping out with courage. Appreciate it. God uses his word not only to absolutely crush us over our sins. It proves to be that mirror that does not lie to us that James speaks of in James chapter 1, revealing all that we are, every flaw, looking at it, exposing us, but it also corrects us back in the direction that we need to go, just as Owen articulated from 2 Timothy chapter 3. It trains us in righteousness. It instructs our minds what we ought to think. It steers our hearts in the direction that it ought to go. It is guardrails for our life. The Spirit uses His Word to sanctify us. The third motivation is that in the spirit of sanctification is that it helps us to fight temptation, right? Fight temptation. You've got this really pronounced example of this in Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11. You will know it as the temptation of Jesus, right? Where Jesus is led out into the wilderness, where he is then interacting and combating Satan. And you have to love the scene there, because at every turn that Satan tries to lay a trap and a temptation and... Um, lure him in to, to rebel against the maker of heaven and earth, God the Father himself. Christ, at every turn, what does he do? It is written, right? He responds 
with a recitation of Scripture to combat and counter the wiles of his arch enemy, right? And it was more than a recitation for Christ. This was as Ephesians 6, right? This is part of the armor of God. He's literally displaying for us what we are instructed to embody as well. Put on the full armor of God is the sword of the Spirit of which he combats and used to bend, bend back the blow of Satan at every turn. The sword of the Spirit, it is written, was his simple reply. Christ at this juncture was really embodying Psalm 119.11. Many of you know this. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. But God's word helps us to fight temptation. Anyone not have temptation in their life? Okay, so this applies to all of us. Just, Just checking. Fourth, this leads to greater worship, all right? Greater worship, John 4, 24. Whoops. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and what, North Lake? Truth. Worship in spirit as well as truth. Romans 12, 1-2, right? We know this passage. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God, which is your important phrase, spiritual service of what? Worship. Then verse 2, notice, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does that renewal happen? But by this book, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, when you read John 4, when you read Romans 12, it's, it's a natural and logical takeaway for us that the word of God should be the dominant, central role of worship among God's people, right? That's why this morning we will start the service. Please stand to your feet in the reading of God's word. We are exhibiting that this book has to have a, 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 a primary place, a central place in our worship. And why is that the case? It's because what is worship? It's, it's focusing our thoughts, our minds, our, our hearts, our voices to the praise of God in response to two things to the revelation of himself to us, and secondly, to his initiative in exhibiting saving grace in redeeming us. We are responding to these things, and God's word ushers us in that task. This is why Jesus said we worship in spirit and truth, and if that worship is to be truly honoring to God, our worship has to accurately reflect the God as he has revealed himself to us in the Bible. Friends, that's why one of the the pillars of Northlake, right? A high view of Scripture, but a high view of what? High view of God. High view of Scripture, high view of God. If you hearken back to Romans chapter 12, when we are conformed to this world, that conformity elevates self, does it not? But when you are renewed transform by the renewing of your mind through the word. Who does that elevate? It elevates God. Stark contrast, polar opposites in play there. 
So one of our motivations is this book leads us to greater, deeper, more robust and sincere worship. Fifth, motivation. It equips us to serve other people. A study of the Bible is absolutely necessary if we are going to help other brothers and sisters in Christ. You and I cannot really help anyone else unless you know something that they need to know, right? How are we going to help one another with our problems and with our troubles and discouragements, challenges and temptations? Well, A, we have to rightfully perceive the problem at hand. And B, we have to point God's people to the solution for said problem. If you ever find yourself sitting in front of a a counselor, right, one discipling you and speaking to your life, and they are just spewing to you their own thoughts and imaginations, and there is no recalling of Scripture, no directing, directing you to the things of God and His instruction and His wisdom, alarm should be going off in your mind. You probably need to be placing yourself in front of a different voice. The way that we help each other is by pointing ourselves each other to God's Word. Not in an arrogant self-righteous sort of way just because we collectively be we collectively believe and chain our lives to the fact that even second peter says that according to his divine power we have everything that we need for life and godliness part of that everything that we need in staunch ways is this book Brings us back to the sufficiency of Scripture, doesn't it? Biblical counseling, discipleship, partners, all of this, God's Word, should be front and center. Why? It's because the Spirit uses us to sanctify us. He helps us fight temptation. He leads us to greater worship. And He helps us to fight and address every problem. That's why, as Owen mentioned a moment ago in 2 Timothy 3, right? All Scripture is inspired by God. We love the word right there, don't we? Profitable. It is useful, productive for all of these things. Sixth, motivation is that it... It gives wisdom for life. It gives wisdom for life. This is the usefulness of God's word. Throughout the book of Proverbs, you have, you know, give ear, give attention, take heed. There are these commands there. Proverbs 1, 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction and wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. For in every observation that we make in life, and we are always making observations in life, every decision that we're making, and every day is full of a, full of a myriad of decisions, all of those observations, all of those decisions and choices begin to be run through the prism that is God's wisdom, not man's wisdom, right? We're, we're emboldened to live out Colossians 2.8. We sniff out every philosophy every empty deception. We can see every elementary principle 
that the prince of the power of the air has sway over in this life, we see it coming from a mile away. Why? Because we've been given understanding and perception and discernment. And we know how to answer. And we know how to counter. The author of Hebrews writes, but solid food is for the mature. And I love this phrase, who because of practice have their senses, what, Northlake? Trained. Trained to discern good and evil. I need a lot of training. I don't know about you. I can make the not get it jumping out on a leap here or on a ledge, I can make the strong assumption that we all need training, yes? To discern good and evil. And God gives us that discernment and wisdom as we avail ourselves to His Word. Seventh and finally, motivation. I told you we were going to be moving fast. fast. God's Word is the key to evangelism, right? One of the closing commands He gave us before His ascension... Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, right? God's word is key to evangelism. Let's look at that for a moment. Luke 24, 27. Jesus exemplified this himself. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Fast forward to the early church, this fledgling, beginning church. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about, and of all the things they could have gone about doing, what did they do? Preaching the word, which we naturally ask, why? Persecution, scattering. They went about locking themselves in their homes and staying silent? No, preaching, boldly proclaiming God's word. Why did they do this? They did this because faithful stewards of the gospel begin with the presupposition that the only thing that has the needed authority to call dead sinners to attention is what? Is not their convincing arguments. It's not their profound and articulate rhetoric, but God's Word. Aren't you thankful for that? I'm not a good speaker. I I stumble over my words. I am Moses of the modern era. This corrects us and rebukes us in that thought, does it not? All I need is God's Word. It's sufficient. Hearkening back to its character. We'll examine the this particular principle and motivation more extensively many, many weeks to come when we kind of look at the discipline, the spiritual discipline of what it is to be faithful in the realm of evangelism. Now these are, our, are the motivations for studying God's Word. We also continue to ask, well, okay, how do I do this? The nitty-gritty, rubber, rubber meets the road, how does this get applied? How do we faithfully study our Bibles, right? A few things to note here, and I appreciated the way the fundamentals of the faith mentioned this, keeping it very simple, right? One is you have exposure has to be in place in your life. Exposure. And by exposure, we mean we have to actually read it and consume it. I'm not talking about laying your head on it. 
and osmosis takes place, actually reading it. And some of the practical things, that it, if you read that this week or in weeks prior, is that you have to actually develop a plan. Think through, what book am I going to park on over the next few weeks? Develop a plan. And then I love this because it was equally convicting for me as he looked at the example of Job. Do whatever it takes. Job 23.12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Does that not prick everyone to, to the core? More than my necessary food? That's desperation. Do whatever it takes. And then third, don't get bogged down. We all know Bible reading plans. We get discouraged. We fall behind. We bog down. And what eventually happens is we just give up. Don't get bogged down. Again, not exceptionally profound, but just richly practical. Develop a plan. Do whatever it takes. And don't get bogged down. We have to read it. Secondly, we have to study it. And now let's look at a few things. What does the study process look like? If you need a, a, an example of this, Tom Pennington have a, has a series, right? Bible study for every Christian on Countryside Bible Church website. I encourage you to get online. That's a computer. That's the World Wide Web. Look it up would be uh, richly encouraging and useful for you even in the weeks to come. Preparation, observation, interpretation, evaluation, meditation, application. A lot of shuns there, okay? Let's walk through them. Number one is preparation. How are we to approach the Word of God? How do we approach it? And the answer to that question is, is twofold. We approach it with purity and humility. Purity and humility. Let's begin to unpack that for a moment. What does purity and humility look like in approaching God's Word? First of all, it entails confessing sin in prayer. And you do this before approaching God's Word, not a token prayer after it, but Prior to opening, we're not talking it even, you know, I have to pray another 45 minutes before. I'm talking just, even if it's, it's more of just gathering the disposition of your heart, being humbled that, that you have no doubt broken God's law and, and, and no doubt God in His kindness will reveal things to you that you need to articulate. First Peter 2.1, and I want you to note over the two passages here, Really the connection between verse 1 and verse 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, what does it lead to in verse 2? Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word. This is the verse that we usually harp on. So that by it may grow in respect to salvation. Unfortunately, verse 1 is often neglected. Put aside. Notice that relationship. Put aside and long for the pure milk of the Word. James 1, 21 articulates really something very, very similar. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the Word implanted, 
which is able to save your souls. Put aside. So approach it with purity, right? Not in the sense that you come as a perfect individual, but becoming, knowing that I, I want to spend time, a few minutes, just confessing my sin. I don't want anything to deter God unleashing understanding and discernment in my life because I'm harboring rebellion in my heart. Same thing that we conveyed with approaching the Lord's table last Sunday. We do so in a worthy manner. And the same principles in play, in play, in play every time we read God's Word. I don't know about you, but how, how often, just think about your own life and practice, right? Have you ever been guilty of just kind of starting your day and maybe the coffee's brewing and your eyes are half awake and the Bible opens and before you know it, you dove right in? Now, there's a lot there in that practice to be encouraged by. But you didn't spend one iota, one second, just stopping for a moment. And again, I'm not talking, it has to be 20 minutes. But you're saying, Father, I have sinned against you this week. And I ask that you would see if there be any offensive way in me. Right? Examine me. I am humbled this morning that you would save me, that I can commune with you. Thank you for your grace. And confess whatever sin is needed. Then you dive right in. may take just a few seconds, but that practice and discipline is extremely important. How foolish is the audacity that we have that we would just jump right in and neglect to pray in this way. Part of this prayer is just exhibiting humility as well. What does humility look like? Well, in confessing sin, the kind of the natural overflow of that prayer is that it traverses to praying for wisdom and understanding. If there's going to be anything productive in that time, however long it is that you have to spend in God's Word, it's going to be because God accomplishes that in that given time, is it not? Colossians 1, verse 9. And we'll close with this in just a moment, later. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in what? The knowledge of God. This is the prayer. Strengthen with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is echoing even Ephesians chapter 3, right? Verse 14 and onward. Where Paul's prayer is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God. They'd be able to comprehend what is the height and depth and width and breadth is the love of God. And you know how he closes that? Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly beyond what you can imagine or think. God gives wisdom and understanding. And our impulse before is read his, read his word should reflect that. The psalmist himself, right? We had a, had a pastor that I served with in Atlanta, Georgia, Baraka Bible Church. He would always begin this, this, the, the time by, by praying this somewhere in his prayer. And he'd kind of chuckle, but it was, it was more of a commitment for him. Open my eyes, right? Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. What a sweet prayer to read 
and say every time, even if it be internal. From there, after you ensure that you are approaching the, the Word with purity and humility, you simply choose a passage. Choose an epistle. Choose a, a pericope or paragraph, a historical book, a prophet, a psalm, whatever it may be. Make a plan, do whatever it takes, and don't get bogged down. Secondly, not only do we prepare, we begin to observe. We ask, begin to ask, what is taking place in this, right? What do I see? See, Bible study begins with asking questions and then seeking to find answers. Ask questions, ask a lot, a lot of questions. In seminary, they you know, used the practice, and it wasn't like this rocket science. It's true for every believer. Take a, take a notepad and just begin to ask tons and tons of questions. And when you go to turn it in, you know, they send you back and say, no, go ask some more questions. And they would do that over and over and again, and you'd have page after page. Why? Because you can ask a lot of questions about even the smallest of texts. People ask here at Northlake, man, how do we spend 50 minutes on one verse and two verses? Because there is a lot of richness there, right? Our pastor spends a lot of time in that given task, and he does so with joy. And so we ask, what is it that we see? Some of the questions that we ask is, as we read and write them down is, what is the historical context? Why? We ask those questions that every researcher and journalist do. Who, the what, the when, the where. Beginning questions, what is the surrounding context, the biblical context, passages, the book as a whole, and how does this fit with the Bible as a whole? What is God revealing, and how is everything connected? You can spend a vast amount of time just looking at that alone. Other things that we observe, and there are a few things that are even mentioned in the fundamentals of the faith I encourage you to go back to. Because you begin to develop these impulses and disciplines, you begin to note key words and circling them and underlining them and asking questions and subject and people and dates and asking why is this here? Well, look at this command right here. That's an imperative. Man, that's really strong. You look at verbs and I want to see what tense that's in. And you notice our pastors, this is a present active participle. And he, he conveys to us time and time again of what that conveys. This is passive. And what is that? What is that implying? And what is that communicating to us? There are warnings and repeated things. And if the Bible is repeating itself, he, you know that the Lord is sounding the alarm. He is screaming from a megaphone. Pay attention. You look at comparisons, things that are similar and different, darkness and light. And you work your way through the Proverbs, and there's a lot of comparisons between the wise and the fool. There are questions, and then there are answers given to the very questions asked. You see that extensively in books like the book of Romans. And even unusual things, unexpected things. These are some of the things that you begin to observe and ask questions, and the encouragement for all of us is take your time in doing this observation process. Don't give up too soon. Don't give up too soon. Stay with it. Ask more questions. And when you spend substantial time observing, then you begin to 
the task of, okay, now that I've examined what it is that I see, I need to ask, what does it mean? What does it mean? Now we're in the step of interpretation. Friends, this is, we're, in the, we're in the discipline that's known as hermeneutics at this juncture, aren't we? The art and science of studying the Bible, understanding it. What is taking place and what does it mean? What are some of the things that we ask? Well, to put simply, what is the importance of this word in relationship to this phrase? Why is this person's name here and this person's title, right? Whether it be for the Lord himself or, or God's people, beloved. Pastor uh, Ragsdale mentioned that last week in the book of Jude, right? Beloved. And he unpacked that for a minute. Well, what's being conveyed there? These are easy titles that we just skim over. You have dates. They help put it in a timeline of history that starts to convey some things of what's going on in God's redemptive history. We make note of things. Genealogies are not unimportant. They're there for a reason. So we ask, what is the meaning of a particular word? Why did the writer say this? What's the implication of this word and that phrase or that name? Now, to find answers to all of these interpretive questions of which should be asked every time that we approach God's Word, to find answers to these interpretive questions, what do we do and what do we use? One is context, context, context. We look at the verses before it, and we look at the verses what? After it. And we begin to expand out from there. How does this fall in line with this pericope and, and this chapter and this book and even what we know about just the book as a whole. We begin to look at the definition of words. We begin to unpack of what is what does that mean? Is there a word play there? Is there an object lesson? We, we look at grammar and syntax of a sentence, right? There's something that we know of, of a discipline in this church in the space that is hermeneutics is grammatical, historical interpretation. That we have a, an omnipotent God who crafted a language so he can communicate to us. And we have a, equally so an infinitely wise God who knows how to use that language to communicate to us as well. So when he conveys something in a certain way, and friends, this goes back to inerrancy and infallibility and inspiration, I know this is... This is put together exactly as God intended for me to read it. The order of words, the emphasis of words, all of that there is there for a reason. So I look at the grammar, I look at the syntax, the sentence structure, the historical context. All of these things aid us and are to be used and interpret. What does it mean? We look at other passages, cross-references. Scripture helps us interpret other scriptures. And last, we use Bible study tools, right? Bible study tools. You have dictionaries, you have concordances, handbooks, encyclopedias, and even commentaries. Now, when you start to talk about Bible study tools, it's very important on a just a practical level. We just remind all of ourselves, remember a few things. We go awry and, and off the rails at this junction. What do I mean by that? We have to remember it, do your own work before you run to the commentaries, right? Don't crack open a commentary 
until you've filled up a notepad with a lot of questions and ask, make observations, documented them. Do your own work. Remember all the while that Scripture is going to agree. It's never going to contradict. And to also remember, let the passage speak for itself. Be careful not to draw conclusions that the author did not intend. And we live in a day with, we've talked about this, theological liberalism, right? They draw a conclusion. They bring already an interpretation and a grid and a prism to reading a passage. They already bring it to the passage so that the passage they use to help convey what they already wanted to say. For us, we know there is only ever one one correct understanding of a passage, and that is the original intended meaning that the author had for us. Our task is, get, is to get to that originally intended meaning. Also remember to extract what we know in hermeneutics known as the timeless principle. And as the name implies, the timeless principle is this. It is that underlying principle that is based upon the character of God and the truths of Scripture that can be applied to just as readily today as several thousand years ago. And friends, there is always, always, always a timeless principle. Regardless of wherever you're at within the 66 books of God's Word, there is a principle to be extracted and lived by. Preparation observation, interpretation. Fourth is just evaluation. And this harkens back to those Bible study tools. Check your work. If you've come to an interpretation, check your work. Use a tool. Use a commentary. Use, use a, a, a good tool. Use ordinary means, which we'll talk about in just a moment, to evaluate where you have landed. Double-check yourself. Fifth is meditation. Meditation. Psalm 1, verse 2 says, The blessed man has his delight and is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates how often? Day and night. And I love this. Our kids, when they were really young, we would love when they, it's like a tree firmly planted, right? And they would scream out, By streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Meditates. Friends, the word picture there, and you've no doubt probably heard this. The image is this beast of the field that's incessantly chewing on its food. Why? So that it can break down every facet of that food before digestion. Can be a gross image, but it's actually an appropriate image. Incessantly chewing on it, meditating on it. This we are instructed to do as well if there's to be a proper study of God's Word. What is biblical meditation? It is a prayerful reflection on the Scriptures with the view of how to understand it and apply it. You are choosing to deeply think about it, right? Chew on it in order to better understand it as well as to plan to how to do it. There has to be this sort of prayerful thought that we give to God's Word to the end that we would have a conformity of our lives to God's will. That is the task in hand. That is the purpose of meditation. This is the antithesis of that New Age thought and ideology that meditation is what? 
this emptying of your mind, it's the opposite of that, is it not? We chew on it to fill our minds, prayerful reflection on God's Word. Sixth, and finally, preparation, observation, interpretation, evaluation, meditation, and now application. When all of these things are done in advance, we ask, what, what effect is this passage to now have on my life? Right? We want to be James 1.22 people, do we not? Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. What effect will this have on my life? How does that timeless principle that I extracted earlier, how does it apply to my life? What specific things do I need to do and need to change in response to this? And, and then pray over those things. Take action, because they're not going to happen by accident. Take action to see that those things are exhibited and applied and manifested in your life. The fundamentals of the faith gave, gave a great kind of memory device to this end. It was called put on your specs, right? It's a great way to remember this. What sin do I need to forsake? What promise do I need to, cl- to claim? What example do I need to follow? What command should I obey? And what stumbling block should I avoid? Put on your specs. And the reason why we put on those specs is because in this task of studying God's Word, we've already articulated there's ever only one correct understanding of God's Word, but aren't there many, many different applications? Many tributaries and and tentacles of which that one meaning starts to manifest itself in our life and starts to convict us and rebuke us and correct us and train us in righteousness. It's profitable for all these things. It definitely does. And so we grow in the discipline of what it is to apply. We prepare, we observe, interpret, evaluate, meditate, and we apply. One of the things that we left off last Sunday and I said that we would try to get to this week is, okay, I'm studying God's Word. Well, what do I do with difficult passages? What do I do with difficult passages? There's two systematic theologies I encourage you to spend time in, even throughout this series. Uh, John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew have their systematic theology. It's, uh, it's great for weightlifting, but also reading. And you also have Wayne Grudem's systematic theology as well. Both of them, when unpacking them, they, they convey some of these same principles, right? What to do with difficult passages? We know Peter said, hey, listen, some of Paul's writings are difficult and hard to understand. When we find those, and there will be those, and some of you say there are a lot of those, and that's okay. One, just remember, when you have passages difficult to understand, one, it takes time. Remember, it takes time. The process for understanding God's Word doesn't happen all at once, does it? There's a process to understand God's Word. The biblical commands to, in fact, meditate on God's law implies that we are going to grow in our understanding. It doesn't all just hit us like a ton of bricks the moment that we read it. 
Even Paul speaks of the process of gaining understanding, right? 2 Corinthians 1.13 For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand. You're going to grow in your understanding. And he conveys that to them. What an encouragement that should have been and probably was. Even Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13, a a deeper understanding is going to be granted to you as what? You mature and grow in your faith. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Praise God, we don't always stay infants, right? But solid food is for the mature. Maturation takes place, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. There's a progression of depth in growth. It takes time. Friends, the bottom line is that clarity is a characteristic of Scripture, but clarity is not a characteristic of us, is it? We are sinful, flawed creatures, and we have an infinitely profound God. So, of course, the logical assessment and conclusion is, of course it takes me time to understand this depth and riches and treasure of a book. Growth in understanding is a lifelong process. Secondly, it takes effort. The same verses on meditation affirm that effort's involved. You, you actually have to chew. It's not enough just to stick it in your jaw and to be gross, suck on its juices. You have to extract energy and effort. That was gross. Ezra 7.10 Ezra set his heart, this is convicting, set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Set his heart to study the law. Is that you this morning? He presumably knew the law of the Lord, but nevertheless, he studied it in order to understand it more fully. He put effort and energy, sweat equity. These things take effort. Third, use of ordinary means. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, In a due use of the ordinary means, even the unlearned may attain unto a sufficient understanding of those things in Scripture which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation. Ordinary means. What are those ordinary means? A few of them. Use a translation of the Bible in your own language. We covered a few weeks ago of the spectrum of faithful translations of the Bible. Use a faithful word-for-word translation, but use one in English. Listen to teachers of the Word, people that God has gifted to teach and expound and exposit God's Word. Read commentaries where available. That's simply the teachings of those who have been gifted to do so. Seek understanding, and this is where small groups come in, with the fellowship with other believers and Bible study. And use modern tools, concordances, lexicons, historical background books, grammar. All of these are modern tools to help us more precisely get down to the sense of what the original author was intending. Use ordinary means. Fourth, have a willingness to obey. This is very important. A willingness to obey. And it sounds simple, but this should be necessary to any right understanding of Scripture. You remember that Jesus spoke to the Jewish, his Jewish opponents, right? And he says, 
in kind of conveying their unwillingness to receive what he was teaching, and they were unwilling to receive what he was teaching. John 8, 43, why do you not understand what I say? Very logical question. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. They were unwilling. They were unwilling. Even Paul implies that the moral and spiritual immaturity of the Corinthian church was preventing him from imparting a deeper understanding, from imparting solid food instead of just milk. Look at 1 Corinthians 3. But I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. And what does he say there? For you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? There is not a willingness to obey. What did we do with difficult passages? Have a willingness to obey. The practical takeaway, the implication here is that this qualification mentioned at this juncture is that Christians who begin to practice a willful, repeated pattern of sin, what begins to happen in their life? We know this in Scripture, right? The effect that sin has on us. We they begin to lose sound judgment. Their consciences begin to be seared. They're no longer trained to discern right and that which is evil. They become less and less able to understand God's word rightly because they are not willing to obey and to bear up under it. Fifth, what do we do with difficult passages? We have to have help from the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of Psalm 119, there's a lot of prayers to this end for understanding. And, and what did it, it, it implied there that the psalmist knew deep down in his heart of hearts that he had a profound need for assistance. We read it earlier, Psalm 119, 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Verse 27, Make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Verse 34, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Verse 73, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Even the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit. the Spirit of God, for they are all folly to Him, and He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 2 Corinthians three fourteen. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Chapter 4, verse 3 of 2 Corinthians, and even our gospel is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Friends, this in part is the reason why the helper, the Spirit, was given to us, right? 
John 14, 6, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. What does it say? He will teach you all things and bring you to your remembrance all that I've said to you. 1 Corinthians 2, 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand the things freely given of God. Time, effort, use of ordinary means, help from the Holy Spirit. What do we do? We need all of these things. When we approach difficult passages, rich passages, passages that require a little more to unearth in mind. What should the takeaway be for all of us there? Friends, I encourage you to pray Colossians 1.9, right? Lord, fill me with the knowledge of your will. Give me all spiritual wisdom. Give me understanding so that I may walk in a manner of the Lord. Make that the disposition. Ensure that that is the disposition of your heart every time you study God's Word. All of these principles in practice, preparation, observation, interpretation, evaluation, meditation, application, what begins to happen if you only do two of, this, of the six of these things? Your study of God's Word, does it suffer? Absolutely. All of these should be a part of the process. I, I love how fundamentals of the faith in closing, and we're right up to time. It kind of uses this illustration. What happens if you carry a very large Bible with only two fingers, your pinky and your thumb? How long are you able to hold that Bible? How securely are you able to hold that Bible? How easy is it for someone to knock that Bible out of your hands? It's a whole lot easier. And praise God, I don't have six fingers, right? But if you use all of your fingers and you fasten your hand to it, the whole of your hand. Obviously, the object lesson being conveyed there in Fundamentals of the Faith is use all of these in the study of God's Word. Now, next week, talking about bibliology, the origin and nature of the Bible, now how to study it, and that was a lightning blitz journey through just really hermeneutics from high elevation. Next week, we get to dwell in a place in a valley known as theology proper, looking at the attributes and character and nature of God. So uh, we will be moved and overwhelmed with that to be sure. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. It's right and good for us to thank you for this morning. We thank you for in the minutes in advance. Lord, we get to, we get to hear from another brother in Christ, a like-minded brother and fellow pastor of, of your church, Tim Kentrell who's ministering and has been now for 23 years in South Africa, reminding us, Lord, that you are fulfilling that wondrous promise to build your church, and you're doing so not in North Lake, Texas, but, Lord, globally around the world. Help us to be mindful of the enormity of what you're doing. Help us to be overwhelmed by it. And, Lord, stir stir us to have an equal heart for the nations as we ought. Convict us where we do not. Lord, we ask as he opens up Acts chapter 11 this morning that you would give us understanding. Open our eyes that we would behold wondrous things from your law. Lord, that is our heart and our prayer. And Lord, full, fuel our worship of you in song and attentiveness to the scriptures to have all of the degree of sincerity and fervency that you rightfully deserve for you are worthy. 
We pray this now in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.